Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, a couple things before we get into it, just since this is sort of my update show as well to tell you guys where things are at. I've recently moved, as I think most of you guys know now, and I'm getting settled into my new place, new background, new everything here, and you'll see shortly some other new things around um, as I get my studio set up here. Um, there have been some questions, and I'm not taking them up in the Q&A section, but I'll just answer it here, that about YouTube's change of policy on ad revenue and on showing ads on channels. And my channel has not been directly affected by that, but it's been indirectly affected by that. I haven't lost um, you know, ads showing up or monetization on any of my videos that I'm aware of right now because I'm not engaged in hate speech and you know, crazy stuff like that. But um, there is a collateral effect to this. And so I would encourage anybody who's watching who, if you've been kind of on the fence as to whether you might want to support this channel through Patreon, um, I would ask that you, you know, get off the fence and go for it because I could really use the support and because um, the ad revenue is going down, I think, pretty much across the boards on YouTube for many, many, many channels, even if they aren't directly having their um, videos demonetized by YouTube for controversial speech or hate speech or something like that. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there and let you guys know that your support is what keeps this channel going because it's what keeps me going and allows me to put the time in to do the research and put together high quality videos for you guys. And I'm going to keep doing that no matter what. It's really just a matter of how fast I can get to things and how much I can get done in per unit of time and, uh, and your support buys me that. Another thing I wanted to um, share with you guys is there was uh, last week I gave an answer regarding um, the First Amendment and religion and I got an email from a lawyer viewer who, um, Jim, and he gave me um, some additional information that I thought some of you guys might want to know about. So if you haven't seen last week's show and my answer, I think it's the first answer to the first question on the show, about the First Amendment and how Scientology uses that to get away with things and how religion in general does. Here is what Jim says. He says, uh, Chris, as someone who was a lawyer for seven years, I have to say that your answer was very good for a layman. Three quick clarifications. One, you can consent to anything short of death as long as consent is not obtained fraudulently. That was the problem with Narconon holding themselves out as drug treatment or saying there is no disconnection when there is. Two, the First Amendment protects beliefs, no matter how weird, and private behavior. So you can refuse psych drugs, Amish can homeschool their children if their religion requires it, but not harmful behavior. If it did, the person being harmed is denied his First Amendment beliefs. There is freedom from religion as well as freedom of religion. Three, the First Amendment never protects fraud. Fraud and defamation were illegal in all 13 states when the First Amendment was ratified, so it clearly was intended to cover sincere beliefs only. Read Malko versus Holy Spirit Association, which covers these topics quite well. All right, so I have not read Malko versus that uh, 
Spirit Association, and I haven't delved into this any more deeply, so I don't have any other clarification on this answer yet, but I wanted to give you guys that because I thought it might help with that answer from last week. So, all that being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions for this week because we've got some good ones. Brave bloggers. I've read stories of Scientology parishioners who may choose to go to another location or country, aside from their own, to partake in services for a price that is less expensive due to a more beneficial exchange rate, as an example, as opposed to paying more for the same services offered at their closest office. I'm speaking more about OT levels or other services that are limited to one of the six, I believe, places where these costly services are limited for delivery, but I suppose it could apply for any service. Can you discuss this? Yeah, you bet I can. Um, this is actually kind of interesting. This is one of those little minutia points of the inner workings of the world of Scientology that really never gets talked about. But when I was over all of the delivery for the Western United States, um, my post was called the Assistant Technical Aid for West US, or A Tech Aid. Um, I, this came up as an issue because um, in the United States, services, let's say an intensive of auditing at a regular city level class five org, let's say it costs $3,200 American. Well, you go to FLAG for that same service and the cost goes up because FLAG is a higher level organization. Uh, in fact, it goes up at, at the Sea Org orgs to a certain, let's say it's $3,200 at your local org, it's $4,000, let's say, at uh, ASHO, and uh, $4,500 at AO, at the advanced organization, and if you go to FLAG and maybe it's $6,000 for the same 12 and a half hours of auditing. Um, and then there are services that are only delivered at the C org orgs, which you can't get at the class five orgs, and so they charge more for those as well. But what was happening was people were going down to Mexico and doing services down there, uh, flying from California or you know um, places like uh, like Denver or Twin Cities, where they had local class five churches that they could do, that they could go and do their services at, and this was all pre clear services. This wasn't the OT levels or the advanced services. And so they, they you know, a person, let's say, had $20,000 to spend on auditing. Well, if they went down to Mexico, those intensives of auditing, those 12 and a half hour blocks of auditing were not $3,200 each. Those intensives were $2,000 each once you did the, the conversion, right? And the reason for that is because there is a, the, the prices are set by international management based on a formula Hubbard put together where I don't remember the exact formula, but it goes something along the lines of uh, an intensive or 12 and a half hours of auditing should cost like two months worth of an average salary for the area or some or the country, something like that. So whereas, you know, 3,200 in the U.S., equivalent in the United, in the Mexico would be $2,000 US, so, or even less. And so people were, were actively going down there. Now this wasn't tons of people, there weren't floods of this, there wasn't word getting around to everybody about this. And not everybody could arrange their life to go down to Mexico for two, three, four weeks and just get, you know, tons of auditing. Uh, at that rate, but, um, but it was coming up often enough and the United States churches were complaining to us like, this is not okay. People can't go off to Mexico to get the same services for less. And um, 
and I it was and I thought this I thought wow that's off the rails how could we you know as a church be doing that shouldn't it be uniform well no um, that did not get resolved at all there was no problem the international guys didn't have any problem at all with people flying down to Mexico or Venezuela or uh, wherever to do their auditing services for cheap they said hey look there's no there's no Hubbard policy that says you can't do this you can't forbid somebody from the United States to fly down to Mexico and pay an org down there for auditing you just can't you know nobody really could find any policy that said that this is an, an you know not okay to do so so they did it and um, now you could this also happened with people flying to Australia like you mentioned in your question people could pay less because of exchange rates and in a foreign country than they would here for the same services at the Sea Org level also. So where a person might uh, have to pay, you know, what did I say, 4,500 or, or something like that for an intensive at the Advanced Organization of Los Angeles, if they went to Australia and did the services in Australia, maybe they'd pay enough, significantly enough less that it would pay for the airfare to go down to Australia and their accommodations and so they were spending the same amount of money to get their services somewhere else. So yes, this was a thing. Yes, it came across my plate and nobody really wanted to do anything about it. And that's, uh, that's kind of how that went down. Chris Wood, in the comments section of your Q&A number 102, a commenter posted a link to a video of a Scientologist, pro-Scientology man who was attempting to lampoon your efforts to expose the dark world of Scientology. What are your thoughts about this type of thing? I would like to point out that the rather crass man in the video employed all of the techniques and buzzwords that you've said Scientologists would use when attacking the church's detractors. My opinion about this subject is that it is a rather positive sign that you're having a negative effect on the Church of Scientology or they see you as a threat. Either one of those things is a good thing on their own. Taken together, they make a promising combination. Yeah, you know, haters gonna hate. Um, I made a video this last week uh, sort of responding to, you know, criticism I've received and, and that was all very tongue-in-cheek and just sort of poking fun at it and I was being completely goofy. Um, I'm actually <laughs> probably not as funny as I would have liked it to have been. I'm not really a comedian, but um, I, I'm really funny when I get high. That's, that's when I'm really funny. Anyway, um, as far as this subject goes, some people were disappointed that I haven't addressed this more seriously, though, or more head-on. So let me go ahead and do so, but I'm not going to address the broad thing. I'm just going to address one, what I think is the root situation here, which is that I speak out against Scientology and I speak out against the Church of Scientology. There are people who make a differentiation between those two things. Um, they, there is a subject of Scientology, which is a, as, you know, they think is a, a valid, uh, researched, um, workable philosophy that will, that through its principles, you can improve your existence and spiritual condition. Then there is the organization of Scientology, which is the Church of Scientology. And these people um, are careful to draw a distinction between those things. I have sort of given up on, on really drawing that distinction. I used to. I used to pay a lot of attention to those words. But I don't so much now because for me, the subject of Scientology is invalid as a uh, subject. It's presented as one thing when it's really something else. 
And uh, the Church of Scientology as an organization is, of course, a corrupt organization, which is uh, led from the top by somebody who is, does not you know, really have Scientology's best interests at heart and is using it to, for personal aggrandizement, ego, and for financial gain. Um, Hubbard, say what you will about the guy, and I've said plenty, was at least a true believer in the subject. And, uh, and you know, he was also mentally unbalanced, so there's that too. Uh, but he did truly believe that what he was doing was the right thing to do. That doesn't give him a pass on anything. It's just a, state, it's just a statement of, of where his head was at. I don't think David Miscavige shares that, that passion or that vision. Um, that's my opinion. I could be wrong about that. I believe from everything that we see that David Miscavige does that, I'm, that I think I'm right. So, okay, so that's the current state of the church and my opinion of it. And then there's the subject of Scientology, which I have said um, has some uh, ben beneficial results for a certain percentage of people who use it at certain levels or on certain things. But I have said that it is more harmful than beneficial. Now, the argument being made against me is that there is good in Scientology, the subject of Scientology, and that good is not acknowledged by me enough, and that, the, uh, and that I should go out of my way to differentiate these two things, and that I should be saying that the benefits of Scientology are there and should be uh, gotten, and that, the, and, then, and that I'm not doing that for fear that I am uh, taking a position that if I acknowledge any good in it, that I am somehow endorsing the subject or saying, hey, you know, you should check it out. Well, that's true. I am not endorsing the subject. I'm not talking about the benefits of Scientology for, on purpose because, um, because I don't think it's a good thing. Now, the, the position against me on this is that it is a good thing. There are benefits to it. They haven't, the, the, the people who say these things, the independent Scientologists who are in opposition to me on this, have not given a ratio, but they seem to imply that it's sort of a 50-50 thing, like there's all these good things and they're really good, and then there's these bad things, and if you, you know, and, and, if, and if I speak just about the bad things, that I'm not talking about the really good things. But, but here's the thing, those things that they think are really, really good, as far as I'm concerned, are not that good. They're, they're just not that great. The, the TRs, the training routines, for example, is something that are, that are put up on pedestals. They're so great. They are um, wonderful drills to improve your communication. I have said, and other people have said, that you know, we first got into Scientology through the communications course. Um, and that we got benefit from it, you know, that I have, um, you know, that some of my ability as a, as a public speaker or communicator is due to those TRs. Well, there might be some truth to that. In fact, I think there's some truth to that, but it's a, it's a little bit of truth. It's not a lot. And I don't ever think I've tried to put out that I owe my speaking ability or language skills or communication skills solely to Scientology. And I've also taken great pains to say that any benefit that I got out of a Scientology communications course, I believe can be gotten from any communications course offered by almost any group anywhere. 
I don't think it requires sitting in a chair for hours on end staring at somebody else in order to improve your communication skills. And in fact, I believe that those drills are harmful to your um, mental processes. I believe that those put you into a hypnotic trance, a, a more suggestible state. And I think that post-hypnotic suggestion is used in Scientology, not because Scientologists know that's what they're doing, but that doesn't take away from the fact that that's what's happening. You know, you sit down for hours on end and, and go into some sort of a trance state, staring at somebody, trying to be there in present time, comfortably confronting them without blinking and, uh, or twitching or moving or doing anything. Um, and you, your head goes to some pretty strange places, excuse me. Then you, and uh, what I mean by post-hypnotic suggestions is, well, then you finish that and you do other coursework or you go and talk to a registrar or other Scientologists and they're like, isn't Scientology great? And you're like sitting there going, you know, through this strange experience thinking, yeah, wow, this, uh, yeah, I guess this is really great. And you start interpreting everything through this, these filters of what other people are telling you. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychoanalyst or anything, so I'm just really throwing out, you know, a, sort of my own ideas on this, but, but that's what I think. I don't think that you need to have these drills. I don't think these drills are, are that valuable or that important, and I don't consider them the good parts about Scientology, you know. I also don't think the philosophy of Scientology, uh, that man's a spiritual being, he's uh, been in a, a near-immortal being, as I've explained, a, a thetan. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't believe in any of that anymore. So I don't look at that as anything that's inherently good. It's a, it's a view of how life is and how uh, we get along in life, but it's not any more valid than Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other philosophy of life, including atheism. Uh, it's a belief system. It's based on faith. You can't prove the existence of a Thetan any more than you can prove the existence of God. So these two, you know, so this is not like, oh, it's so beneficial to believe this. It's not beneficial to believe that. I, I think actually that it's, uh, it causes, as I've explained in my Scientology and Death video that I did recently, I think it creates a rather altered view of reality where you are not facing death and, and life in, on their own terms and with a, and with a realistic viewpoint. Um, there are many, many other factors in Scientology that are not really that great, but they're pumped up, you know, they're, they're inflated and exaggerated into, into these great things. Looking up words in a dictionary, you know, it's the be-all, end-all of study in Scientology. Well, that doesn't mean that now I'm not in Scientology anymore, that I don't use a dictionary. I got a great big one on my bookshelf. I use it all the time. But I don't sit there and look up every definition of every word that I have a question about and use them in sentences and then go into derivation and go track all that down and use all the Scientologies uh, and techniques of that in order to fully clear a word. I don't, I don't do that. I just, oh, I don't know what this word means here. And I go grab a dictionary, look it up. Good, I'm done. And now I understand what that said. That's not Scientology. That's what we've been using dictionaries for since the day they were invented. So I don't assign an, you know, an exaggerated level of importance to looking up words in a dictionary. So these things that are, uh, that are put out by pro-Scientology people as so beneficial and so wonderful and unique to Scientology, I don't agree with. I don't think that any of those things are, are necessarily true or valid. 
that's my position. And for that, I am criticized and then now recent, more recently made fun of. Okay, whatever, you know, that's my position on it. And, um, and I will be making later this year a series of videos breaking down all the different techniques or, or, or pieces of technology of Scientology piece by piece. Um, I haven't gotten to that yet because I wanted to get the move done and I want to get settled in and I want to, when I start that series, I want to go all the way through it because it's going to be a long one like my Deconstructing Scientology series was. There's a lot to cover in that. And I will talk in that series about the benefits and the, the pros and the cons, right, of these different pieces of Scientology uh, tech. So I'm not sitting here saying that there's no benefit, that nobody ever got anything out of it. And I am, I, I believe that my position is a proportionally correct one. Um, I guess I'm going to uh, go down the, the Nazi rabbit hole to make an exaggerated example of something to demonstrate my point. Uh, you could talk about the benefits of Hitler's rise to power and the boost to the German economy, the uh, creation of jobs, the various things that happened in 1920s Germany that were beneficial, and assign those things to the Nazi party and to Hitler. And if you start making those arguments today, you, people are going to look at you a little funny. They're going to go, why are you talking about the benefits that Hitler brought to Germany? Because look at all of the horrible, awful things that he did and the fact that he brought about World War II and millions and upon millions of people died as a result of what this man started. So sure, there were benefits. There were things that happened in Germany that, that you could look at in and of themselves and say those were good things. But they are so far outweighed by the bad that it's, it's a disproportionate argument that makes it, because of its disproportionateness, it makes it invalid. It makes you wonder, why are you bringing that up in the first place? Sure, the Volkswagen was a good thing. It employed a lot of people making them. A lot of people drove around in them because they could afford them. Great. Now, let's talk about the millions of people who got killed, right? Now, that's an exaggerated example to demonstrate the proportionality logic of my argument about Scientology. I'm not equating, I'm not making a false equivalency of Scientology to Nazis. I'm trying to demonstrate a point through analogy. And my analogy is that the proportion of damage that Scientology causes is so heavy compared to the almost nothingness of benefit that it brings that you just throw the whole thing out and be done with it. Okay? That's my argument. And so, um, so if people want to make fun of me about that or say that I'm stupid or not a critical thinker or that I don't engage or that I'm not, you know, uh, don't talk about these things, well, th now I'm doing it, okay? And that's why. That's all the things that I, uh, that's the position I have on that. So um, now that that's been said and done, I don't plan on doing this again. <laughs> I'm not here to uh, debate other ex-Scientologists or critics of me or other people who have something to say about my work. I feel that my work stands on its own and speaks for itself. And that's why up until this week, um, I haven't really even gone into addressing any of this because those, those guys, 
aren't what I'm doing this for. And they, then they don't really mean anything to me. So, um, so I think I've pretty much done about as much as I'm going to do on that. And I got a lot more things to talk about that I think are a lot more constructive and interesting and educational and informative and entertaining. So there you go. Jeff Smith. Do you have any idea why in the early 2000s Miscavige dismantled management and formed the whole? How did destroying the structure help him at all? It seems he just went crazy. Also, since management is gone, who issues his orders and makes sure they are done? Okay, if you have not watched my video called Scientology's Organizational Madness, you absolutely need to do so because that lays out the structure of Scientology's bureaucracy and how David Miscavige has uh, what, what management is supposed to look like and what management now looks like and how it's run. It's not that there isn't anybody up at international management or no orders happen or that there's no structure of any kind. It's that it's not the structure and um, setup that L. Ron Hubbard put there and it's not what Scientologists think is going on. In the late 1990s, and I believe at the, right after the, two, the year 2000 New Year's celebration, um, David Miscavige was issuing some, some evaluations, some, some, a series of programs for the international base. I was not there. This is all secondhand information for me. Um, but he, he issued these evaluations and said, okay, there's all these hundreds of things to get done here in order to make this place tip top and run, uh, you know, and get the trains running on time. And no compliance that was given to those orders was really ever accepted. He just kept kicking it back and kicking it back and getting in people into these endless cycles of trouble after trouble after trouble. Uh, and, and he was saying that he felt betrayed by everybody around him. He could not trust them. They were not doing their job. Now, what motivated him to do this and operate this way, that this went on for you know, years? I can't say. I don't know what goes on in the guy's head. But this is what he did. And people were trying and trying to comply to these orders and get their jobs done in the meantime because the orders did not always fit with, you know, in lockstep with what their job was. But Miscavige had taken over so many parts of their job and as managers I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Executive Director International and the Senior CS International and the President of the Church of Scientology and these high, high positions. He was, he was just stepping in and doing their job whenever he felt like it, issuing random orders or directions on what he wanted done, which was maybe whimsical, maybe some master plan in his head. I don't really know, but this is what he was doing. And when they kept pissing him off and kept not doing whatever it was he wanted done, he applied harsher and harsher levels of Scientology ethics and justice to these people to the point where he eventually uh, conditionally declared them suppressive people. Now, there is no such thing in Scientology as a conditional declare. David Miscavige, as far as I can tell, made it up. If L. Ron Hubbard did it, I never heard about it. But, he, but David Miscavige definitely did it. And he said, okay, you're declared, and the issue is written, and, and I'm ready to kick your butt right out of here, but I'm not going to do it. I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to stay under my thumb, and you're going to work, 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 work. And it was sort of a, uh, just this, you know, status thing of you were constantly in trouble. These executives were put into a position where they were just constantly in ethics trouble, constantly being made wrong and invalidated for any efforts they were making to do their job or make Scientology better. This eventually led to the hole where he just 
you know, had people, he had people sleeping over in their offices, not going home, I mean, for, you know, days and weeks on end. And finally, he just locked him in there and put bars on the windows and locked the doors, put a guard on the door and said, you people are just, I, I've had it, you know, up to here and I can't trust any of you. And, and you guys work it out amongst yourselves to get your ethics in. And this is where Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun and various people have described the conditions that they lived under there, where it became this sort of Lord of the Flies crazy situation. Um, now, when he did that, he didn't lock up everybody. And from time to time, he would pull people out when something needed to get done that, he, that Miscavige either didn't want to do or didn't know how to do. And, um, and so this would go on where people would be pulled out and pulled back in and pushed back in. And this was uh, demonstrated, for example, by Mike Rinder coming out at one point when he was on, in the hole to go speak at an international event. And he looked gaunt and horrible, but he was up there in his uniform, cleaned up and shaved. And, and then right after the event was over, right back into the hole, he went. Or when John Sweeney from the BBC was investigating Scientology and Rinder got pulled out of there and you better handle this guy. And him and Tommy Davis you know, went off to deal with John Sweeney and then at that point, that was Render's breaking point, and he, and he took off from there, and he didn't go back to the hole because he didn't want to deal with that crap anymore. Um, so that's kind of, as I understand it, the evolution of that situation. But Miscavige still has juniors under him who do his bidding. He has RTC, and he has international management. There's, there's a few hundred people up there. And not all of them were under, the, under this, this con conditional suppressive person declare all the time. Now you also have, as I lay out on my Organizational Madness video, you have a whole other echelon below the international management, okay? And that middle management section is where I used to work. And it was, there's, a, there's an international middle management and then there's a continental middle management office. I worked at the continental level for the Western United States. And those levels, the middle management, operates on programs, a series of targets to get done. And there are maybe 50, 60 different programs that are in, in operation at any one time. Some of them important, some of them not so important. In the 1990s, David Miscavige wrote and issued a series of programs called the Inspector General Network Bulletins. Those were given down to us in 1998. And those were the series of orders that we were operating on as our top priority for years. So we didn't need tons of new direction and orders coming down, although we certainly got enough um, from the international middle management section, right, which is called the International Liaison Office. They're the ones who were issuing orders to us at the continental level. And uh, quite honestly, after 2000, there was very little coming from the very, very top. Prior to 2000, we used to get programs and issues and directions um, from international management all the time. And then it sort of got real quiet. And, and, and quiet from that level, not quiet to us from international, from the International Liaison Office. So we were still, you know, getting hammered to get these Inspector General Network Bulletins done, which were considered personal orders personally from David Miscavige, as well as lots of other programs and things to, to uh, execute in the, in the, the orgs. So that's what my time was spent doing, and I spent years and years doing that. Uh, in management before I finally got burned out and 
you know, kind of got done with management and started doing other things in Scientology, and I wasn't part of that management picture anymore. So then in 2004 or five is when the whole push came down for ideal orgs. And then there were new programs coming down to get ideal orgs, but it was mostly about fundraising. And then the two predominant things that started ruling Scientology at all levels was fundraising, selling those books, the basic books and lectures, and International Association of Scientology fundraising, which was membership fundraising. So uh, IAS, right? The IAS salespeople would run around and, and, uh, and make money, just pure straight donations for Scientology, not for services, not for books, not for lectures. And those became the priorities for Scientology, which is why I said, you know, in many times in the past that, that the whole world of Scientology morphed into something that was really just about money. And prior to that, there was always the money factor, but there were other things we were trying to do too, like make auditors, make clears, get people up the bridge. I mean, these were our top, top priorities. After this uh, 2004 or five, none of that really mattered so much anymore. In fact, really after 1996 is really when that started tanking. And by 2005, it was just about the money. So, and, and when uh, fundraisers would go around, our orders down to the orgs would be to support the fundraisers, get the fundraising going, money, 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 quotas on the money, how much money they had to make. And that was the top priority. So I hope all of this kind of paints a picture for you that answers this question of how things changed radically over that period of time in Scientology and how it really hasn't changed since then. Um, now, I haven't been in the church in the last few years, but I don't think there's been another paradigm shift. I think things have stayed pretty much the way I just described. And from what I hear and what I see, that's how it's going. So I... That's about as good a description of the whole thing as I can give you. Uh, but if you haven't seen that video I, I talk about the organizational structure, then please do so, so all of what I just said has even more context for you. Jay Witt. Hi Chris, love your videos. My question for you is in regards to how you learned to be the real Chris after leaving Scientology. What was your process? How did you counter the isolation? How did you come to find hobbies, other groups, and fun that fits who you really are and leave behind the things you were told to be or like? And Junie Hiltunen, does Chris Shelton, Scientologist and Sea Org member, still live in the back of your head? Do you ever catch yourself thinking like a member? Yeah, it was and continues to be a process of recovery for me. In my book, I uh, have written three chapters where I talk about the recovery process and all the things that I have done, mostly education and learning about critical thinking and the journey that you have seen me go through on this channel. If you go back to my earliest videos and walk forward from there, you'll see and hear the changes in me um, as I have let go of more and more of the Scientology thinking and learned more and more about how that thinking process works. and kind of, you know, uh, normalized into the real world out of that bubble world. 
And the process was, uh, yeah, it was mainly one of education, right? But also acclimation. I mean, making friends. I joined uh, meetup.com and I went out to social activities. You know, I went out and started doing gaming again when I was in Minnesota. Don't really have time for that now, but at the time it was great. You know, I guess I, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. Well, I went out and started doing that again just to meet people and just to kind of get back into doing something that was uh, escapism and fun and imaginative. And I also hooked up with secular groups, with skeptic groups, uh, first in Minnesota and then here in Denver with the Secular Hub, and met like-minded people who have come out of religious situations or, um, or never were in religious situations in the first place and found common ground with, with such people. And uh, through learning about skepticism and reason and critical thinking through Carl Sagan and Christopher Hitchens, for example, or um, James Randi right, through the James Randi Foundation, uh, Penn and Teller, you know, some of the, the celebrities of the skeptic world, I have learned to uh, think differently, to look at the world differently. And not because that's how they're telling me how to look at the world, but really opening up to looking at the world the way I want to, not dictated by what somebody else tells me I should be looking at it through or as. So, um, so that's all been part of the process. Now, to this day, sure, Chris Shelton, Scientologist and Sea Org member still pops up every now and again. For the longest time, uh, anytime I had an accident or got sick, I was wondering who's the SP in my environment? You know, what SP am I connected to? I mean, that was just, a, that, that took a long time to kind of flush out. Uh, another one also was being silent around an accident victim or when I, uh, when I or others were injured or hurt because it's really drilled into you in Scientology that if, that if like you're in a room and somebody falls down or hits their hand or their knee or something like that or has, an, has some kind of accident or injury, that you be quiet. And I, it's still kind of an impulse in my head sometimes that that happens and I have to kind of, oh yeah, no, that's bullshit <laughs> sort of thing. So that, um, that still crops up from time to time. It's just these habits. They're just mental habits, physical habits that we have. You know, I'm glad of the work ethic that I have, but I have learned over the last few years to relax, to chill, to schedule out things in my head so I get everything done, but I'm not frantic and, and you know, frenetic about it. Um, and that's been a major, major change in my anxiety and stress levels. Uh, huge, you know. So um, kind of recognizing the relative importance of things, changing and adjusting that after you come out of a situation like that where the world doesn't need saving, you know. So I'd say that answers the question. An Alcast. If when you met Miscavige, you answered his authoritarian instructions with, okay, Dave, instead of, yes, sir, would he immediately punch you in the face? I think actually it would depend on what level of Scientology you were at in terms of uh, uh, the, the Sea Org, where in the Sea Org, or whether you are a public person or a staff member or something like that, actually. Um, because he was not overtly violent uh, that I know of at the, when he was visiting or touring you know, lower echelons. So if, uh, but I'll tell you a story. Uh, there was a, a time, and this was a story that was told to me when I was in the Sea Org, where uh, Miscavige was uh, inspecting some base, uh, some Sea Org area, not, not mine. 
and uh, a guy who did not know who he was. He, he was a new Sea Org member, had never heard of David Miscavige somehow, and he was sitting at his desk, and Miscavige comes in, and the guy doesn't stand up. He's sitting at his, you know, doing his work, and he, and he looks up and he sees David Miscavige there, and he continues doing his work, and David Miscavige walks over to his desk and looks at him and says, you know, do you know who I am? And the guy looks up at him and says, uh, no. And, you know, he just was like, I don't believe this, right? And, uh, and he walked out, and about five people ran in after he walked out and straightened this, this new guy out on how off the rails and wrong he was for not standing up and uh, saluting or addressing David Miscavige's sir and, and getting his head on straight about this. So, uh, so there's a lot of internal pressure within the Sea Org at all levels to give David Miscavige uh, his proper due. And, uh, and it's stories like that that get circulated, I am absolutely sure, uh, on purpose, you know, by certain people in the Sea Org in order to create this mystique and aura of, of respect and fear and admiration towards David Miscavige, even if you never even heard of the guy or ran across him before. Now, these days, of course, this was back in the, in the 90s or, you know, way back in the day compared to now where David Miscavige is the only guy in the spotlight in Scientology. There is nobody else but David Miscavige. Uh, it used to be that there was a whole cater of people who were international management executives who had, you know, uh, people knew who they were and there was respect and there was admiration for those people. Uh, not, not anymore, as, as I've mentioned earlier in this uh, episode, Miscavige got rid of all those guys. So now it's all just about him. If you were at the international base and you pulled something like that, uh, yeah, you'd be dead pretty fast. <laughs> it would not be pretty. And I have seen people uh, in massive amounts of trouble uh, for crossing David Miscavige in some way, even at a public level, um, getting ostracized, kicked out of the church, um, uh, getting severe talking to, having to do amends for, you know, hours and hours and things like that because they somehow slighted him in some way or misspoke about him or something like that. Um, you just don't, you know, it's just not not something you mess around with in Scientology. But it kind of depends a little bit on the circumstances and situation and the mood and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's very arbitrary. There's no set. This is how it always goes down for that. I, I, it's time for flash answers. Supercalifragilistic. What prompted the move? I just moved uh, because I moved in with my girlfriend. We got a place together. Uh, me and Melissa, uh, you can see a picture of her over right there. And uh, she's out working right now as I'm filming this, but uh, we decided to take the plunge and go for it. And so uh, here we are. And that is why I've uh, been going a little crazy the last couple of weeks working all this stuff out. Omega Man, what could you say about Montreal's Scientology operations? They have an office that has been open for at least 30 years. I visited at some point when I was lost. I liked the book, but I didn't fit their typical customer. They told me to straighten up and come back after. I was jobless. From what I now understand, that must have been their sole criteria. Well, I don't have anything specific to say about Montreal because I've never even been there. Um, but I understand as any local city level church or class 5 org, 
as I've said before, they're not a charity. You come in there without a job and without any means to pay for services, they're going to show you the door pretty quickly. They're not really that interested in you. Scientology is, for the, is to make the able more able, as they say within Scientology's world, which really means if you don't have money, we ain't interested. John Jones. Did you know any Scientologists who liked Hubbard's Mission Earth series, or is that another thing, like the Battlefield Earth movie, the Scientologists have agreed not to talk about? It's a lot like the Battlefield Earth movie. There are some people in Scientology who just loved L. Ron Hubbard's 10-volume satirical epic called Mission Earth. Uh, but a lot of people just thought it went on way too long, got tedious, boring, don't really talk about it that much. It's not you know, it's not a popular thing within the world of Scientology, particularly. And uh, I think most Scientologists would really just rather kind of forget about it. Unless you work at Author Services, Inc., where you, which is the literary agent for Hubbard, who has to keep publishing that stuff and putting it out there as though it's really radical and cool literature, when it definitely is not. Sean Milton, look into Cell Earth, please. Okay, Sean, I looked into Cell Earth, and it looks like uh, something even wackier than a flat Earth theory conspiracy uh, sort of thinking. It's this sort of idea that the Earth is actually inside out, where it's a concave sphere, and the universe is somehow in the middle. And I watched a few minutes of the guy's videos and quickly, quickly turned it off because I didn't see any evidence that what he was saying had any real validity. Um, and I invite the guy to, uh, you know, submit some information and evidence to the scientific world and see if he can get published anywhere. I mean, I, just because an idea is strange, peculiar, or weird doesn't necessarily mean I instantly want to write it off as, as it can't be true. Because, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, who would have thought of gravity waves, right? But at the same time, if you're going to put something out there like that, let's back it up with something real. And I didn't particularly notice or see anything very real in what this guy was talking about. It looked like it was kind of uh, stuff he was making up off the top of his head and it sounded pretty goofy. So uh, considering, you know, that we have pictures of Earth from space and uh, have sent, you know, the Voyager probe beyond the ends of the solar system and we have, you know, really good solid evidence of, of the universe as a model that we understand, uh, for somebody to present something so drastically opposed to everything that we think and know and understand about the universe, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So that's my look into Cell Earth. Thanks for uh, uh, referring me to them. That was interesting. Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thanks a lot for coming around. Any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave them in the comment section below. I will see them, and your questions will go in my queue, and I will get to them as quickly as I can. Um, and I want to thank every one of my supporters out there, and uh, especially those who are showing me love on Patreon or through PayPal. All of it helps. It uh, helps keep the show going, and it helps buy me time to do more for you guys. And it really does uh, make my life easier so that I can make your life a little easier which is what I really hope this channel is doing. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.